from the United States of America. Hi, you have reached the Decahedron RPG Cast feedback line. Just start talking at the sound of the tone. Hey, Jason here. Just listen to episode 54, Critical Fumbles. There are some games that use critical fumbles, but that's not the point. The point is it was a clever pun. Or not a clever pun, a clever play on words. But I am in favor of critical hits and critical fumbles. Although I like critical fumbles to be just an automatic miss. So you have a chance at missing and, you, and you're just going to miss that attack. I, I don't necessarily need the characters to throw the sword across the room or any of that. Although that's fine if that's your, your thing. Um, critical hits, I agree. It's best if it's simple. You know, just double damage or you get to make another attack right away, whatever. I, I think that keeps the game going the quickest. Now, if you're using Rollmaster with something like Fantasy Grounds, where it automates everything, then it's not so bad. Same thing with, you know, you talk about 3E. I'm in a Pathfinder game on Roll20 where it automates it. So it, when you when you click to attack, it automatically figures out everything, including if it's critical or not. So in those cases, it's not so bad with the automated tools. But I do agree with the negative that if you let monsters, let NPCs have critical hits, they do have a higher, you know, they're going to statistically get more hits on the players and the players are going to get on them, typically the way the numbers work. So I'm okay with only the PCs getting the chance to do criticals. But I know some people, that, that offends their sense of fairness. All in all, great episode. I look forward to seeing what you guys do next. Hey everyone, that's Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Thanks for that feedback, Jason. Uh, three things I have to say. So you said that you like critical fumbles to be just a miss. So how would that be any different from just a miss? How is it a fumble then? It seems like it's just a miss. I'm, I'm not quite sure what you're getting at there, unless you're saying that you don't like critical fumbles, in which case, sure. The other thing was you said, you know, using roll 20 to automate the tables and everything makes it kind of easy. Yeah, but then you still have that complexity if you're not online, if you're playing at the table. So I don't think the rules should be written uh, with that level of uh, slowdown for my style of play. Of course, you know, if you dear listener, you love them, feel free. I'm not going to make you stop. You said you thought it was okay uh, that crits were only for PCs and not for the monsters slash NPCs. You know, I think that is worthy of an episode of its own. So I am going to leave that for now. But thanks again for the feedback. Hello, Joe and James. This is a response to the episode 55 Crowfield style campaigns. Uh, Really, thank you for sharing that, Joe. I really appreciated hearing your approach to setting up a campaign and the things that you thought were important to, to work out, to make the world make, make more sense. I'm, I'm, I really think a world does need to make some sense and he's making internal sense anyway. Uh, you know, there are some situations where the sort of gonzo, this is just a weird thing that's over here, but you can, you can still explain that within the tech context of the world with magic and stuff. And, but just the, the way you set up the kind of points of light type of campaign you have, where there's a lot for the, for the players to explore and discover and to work with. And you can kind of develop the setting as they go. So thanks very much for, for sharing that with us. That was the pink phantom from the phantom thoughts podcast. 
I think this is your first time calling, so thanks for that pink phantom. What do you like to be called? Anyway, you said that you like the world to make some sense. I agree. I think it's easy to go overboard with that, and the example that comes to mind is sort of these points of light. I'll get to that in a second. These points of light type campaign were the norm for the longest time. Then S. John Ross wrote an article called Medieval Demographics Made Easy. And everyone started to, well, I can't say everyone, a lot of people in my gaming circles and me personally started to make a more realistic medieval setting. And the problem with that is that the more you approach realism, the more you take the fantastic out of it. And the fantastic, the adventure and all that is why we play these games. Another example I will give is in Classic Traveler, they had the simple merchant system, the trade system, where you could, when you were at a port, you could find out what was for sale and you could buy it or not. And when you went to an export, you could sell it, hopefully for a profit. And, you know, it was a nice, simple, fun system. And then Merchant Prince came out and that modified it a little bit, made it a little more realistic. And then GURPS Traveler came out and there was a GURPS supplement called Fat Trader. And I think it was about, I think it was written by John Ziegler, who also wrote GURPS Grease, which is one of my absolute favorite GURPS supplements ever. But in GURPS Far Trader, he made it very, very realistic. And he said, if you get these situations where you're going to get a high profit from buying, I don't know, sprockets at spaceport A and then selling them at spaceport B, eventually somebody will figure that out, somebody else, and they will come in and they will undercut you a little bit and you'll have to undercut them or someone else will come in and they'll undercut them. And eventually the profit reaches the point where it's the minimal profit. So all of that doesn't really matter. And you should just assume that everyone's going to get like 10% profit per journey, provided that the markets are right. And that just sucked all the fun out of it. Very realistic, very not fun. So yes, I like my worlds to make some sense, just enough to suspend disbelief. And uh, no more. If you think about it too much, like my, again, we'll say the, the points of light thing, um, if you think about what each village needs to really do to be self-sufficient. So if they make pottery, what do they burn? They must have to burn coal. And so where do they get the coal? So they must have mines and they must, you know, you create this whole infrastructure around it and it, it falls apart. So I don't go that deep. I make it just enough so that you can play and have fun. If you think too hard, it will probably uh, wear off. The next thing I want to talk about is the points of light. You said points of light, and I have another feedback. I guess I haven't played it yet. I think it's Jason who talks about this points of light style campaign. And the only reference I knew to points of light was George H.W. Bush's inaugural address. As a gaming context, I wasn't really familiar with it, other than I think that was a card in the Illuminati New World Order, a trading card game by Steve Jackson. So I had to look this up, and apparently it was a term that was that used in fourth edition, but itself actually evolved, uh, 
evolves from a phrase that Gary Gygax used back in the Greyhawk supplement that came out in 1980. Okay, I, I've learned something today. Thanks for that. I guess a Crowfield style campaign is a points of light style campaign. I never knew. Anyway, thanks for the feedback. Please call back. I appreciated it. And of course, just like with Jason's podcast, there is a link to Pink Phantom's podcast in the show notes. Thanks again. Hey, Jason here. Just want to say enjoy the Crowfield episode. You know, Beyond the Wall does that really well. The idea, you know, the points of light and creating the town and all that. But it, it is built for player input and players to take part in the creation of the world. So that's not always attractive to everybody. But, but it does do it very, very well. And I agree with you about the post-apocalyptic, you know, state of Gygax's, the, the original D&D and all that. It, it 100%, it, it, I agree, it, it's a post-apocalyptic world, which, which is really interesting, which also explains population and the openings and the fact you have the tombs and the dungeons and, and all that. So, so it actually fits really well. Great podcast, great episode, and I'll talk to you again soon. Hey, Jason. <laughs> Thanks for that feedback. Uh, Beyond the Walls, I've never heard of it. I will put on my list of things to check out. As for player, well, let's call it group world creation, I have mixed feelings about that. My first place is, of course, GM world creation, followed by group world creation, followed by picking up somebody else's world. And I would go into more detail, except I think we have an episode planned on that. Although with the changes, I don't know if that's, I don't know. But yeah, I'm going to hold off on commenting on that. Because like I said, I think we're still going to do a, an episode about that. Yeah, the post-apocalyptic stuff. Yeah, I agree. Of course, I agree because I said it. I also, when I talked about the USS Crowfield style campaign, and I talked about it being a starship a Federation starship that crashes. That's a nod back to Arneson's original Blackmore campaign. I mean, I don't know if you've ever read First Fantasy campaign, but if you do, I personally think it's a hard read because it's just a bunch of stuff thrown hither and thither and you gotta just muddle through. But there are these gems planted there. And like one of the things... If I'm remembering right, but hey, it's my memory, so it's right in my world. Um, the first magic item ever handed out to anybody in Blackmore, you know, the game that would eventually become D&D. &D. So we could say the first magic item ever given out was a Star Trek tricorder. So I, I thought that's a great uh, inspiration for the USS Crowfield style campaign as well. From a practical point of view, and I don't think I explained this well, from a practical point of view, the reason for the wilds being so dangerous is that it keeps those settlements very isolated, even from each other. So when a player goes to a town, everybody in the town's not going to know what's in the surrounding area because it's too dangerous to leave the town. So they might know the next town in each direction, but only like one or two people might have ever been to that other town. Again, that's just to add to the isolation so the players don't go to the first town, get a map of the entire game world, and don't need to explore anything. That's the practical reason. Thanks for the feedback. Joe, it's Evil Jeff. Just listen to your latest podcast, the Crowfield-style campaigns. 
uh, like your ideas in there, uh, names of them, pretty cool. <laughs> you know, pull from real life, makes life a lot easier. Uh, kind of reference to your Crowfield campaign idea that's uh, similar to what Todd over at Third Kingdom Games does with his world. Uh, you have pockets of civilization. Um, people can go between them. Uh, but there is a lot more danger out there. Uh, he talks about cycles of chaos and law, and when there's a lot of chaos, there's just a lot of bad monsters out there, and usually when you're venturing, you're coming out of one of those chaos cycles. So good stuff, and keep it up. Hey, that's Evil Jeff. Evil Jeff is the host of the Minions and Musings podcast. Hey, thanks for that, Evil Jeff. Uh, yeah, I find the names work out well that way, and English names in particular by nature have a very medieval feel to them because they're very medieval type names like Helmden. I mean, that's the village I live just outside of, right? I mean, Helmden. I mean, it, it invokes these things in Radstone, right? It, it, it strikes me that, you know, the, the land there has, has this, this rock that radiates magic or something, you know, it, it invokes stuff when I hear the names. Third Kingdom Games, yeah, I've never heard of this company. I will definitely check that out. As for Cycles of Law and Chaos, um, yeah, my world has something a little bit like that, but they're a lot longer, and I don't think it sounds like the same thing at all. Let's talk about the old gods and the new gods and stuff like that. It sounds like Todd has a more interesting idea there. So yeah, I'm going to uh, check out Third Kingdom Games and see what they have. Thanks for the tip. And thanks for the feedback. So that's all the feedback we got this week. Thanks, everyone, for sending that in. Uh, Wednesday's episode is going to be talking a little bit about one of my Crowfield-style campaigns. It's going to be talking a little bit about the one I call Bloodport Island. And it's going to be kind of an introduction to what that setting is. And the week after that, oh, we have uh, the follow-up interview with uh, Keith. And this time she's joined by Heather, you know, the new gamer interview talking about six months later how they feel about gaming and there's one other feedback that i haven't played yet because it's a little off topic it's talking about movies and so that's going to be after the end music if you don't want to hear that just go ahead and uh, skip it again thanks everyone for listening please send us feedback feedback at decahedron.com is the email address remember spelled decahedron with a k there's other methods they're all in the outro music or they're in the show notes or you can just go to decahedron.com and there's a feedback section there and it talks about all the ways to do it. Again, decahedron, D-E-K-A-H-E-D-R-O-N. Uh, again, thanks for listening. Take care. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Decahedron RPG cast. We'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a voice message by calling 562-774-2278. That's 562-RPG-CAST. Or by visiting sayhi.chat slash decahedron. You can also email us at feedback at decahedron.com. Links are in the show notes. For more information, visit decahedron.com. Remember that decahedron is spelled with a K. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Logo is by DesignCat. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep those dice rolling. So you started talking about movies. I saw Renfield and also really enjoyed it. I, I thought it was 
very well done. Nicholas Cage does a great job. The little bit he's in it, it, it's not his movie, but he definitely commands the screen when he's on screen. But, yeah, interesting little movie. It, it definitely feels like they put two plots together, but I, I think they made it work okay. As far as, you know, favorite movies, The Wizard of Oz, The Fifth Element, and Ender's Game, that's an interesting combination. Um, I, I just rewatched The Fifth Element uh, last night, actually, as I sent you this. It was on TV. And, yeah, The Fifth Element's a really interesting movie. You, you know, now, looking back on it, it's obvious how much he drew from the heavy metal movie, the heavy metal animated cartoon movie, you know, for The Fifth Element. But, yeah, it still stands up. Still great, great movie. Um, yeah. Hey, Jason. Thanks for that. Yeah, I guess technically speaking, it's not Nick Cage's movie because he plays the villain. I, I'm not giving anything away there. Uh, that's in the trailers. He does command the screen. I agree with you completely. I don't know how he became such a joke because I have never seen him in anything bad with the possible exception of Ghost Rider. Mm. Did not care for that movie. But National Treasure, great movie. City of Angels, great. That one he had last year where he played a fictionalized version of himself. Amazingly funny. I enjoyed it. He was great in this. I played your feedback for my wife. And because, you know, Wizard of Oz and Fifth Element are her favorite movies, not mine. Mine would be A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, Mrs. Miniver. Best Years of Our Lives, Captain's Courageous. Wow, all of those are black and white. I wonder what that says about me. Anyway, uh, Love Actually, you know, uh, Princess Bride. Those are the top ones. Anyway, I played it for my wife. She said, yeah, there really is no number three. The number three slot comes in and out. So, you know, at one time it was Ender's Game. You know, at other times it will be other things. And as for Heavy Metal... She disagreed with your comment about Fifth Element drawing on it, but she also added the caveat that she hasn't seen that since its original theatrical run back when we were in high school. And the only thing she really remembers about it is the soundtrack and that it struck her at the time that the intended audience for that film was hormone-hyped teenage boys, and that was not her. So maybe there's more in there that she's not remembering, but that's what she had to say about it. Thanks for your call.